0: Luke chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Usually when we think of Jesus healing someone, we think of someone who is lame, perhaps, in John 9, uh, perhaps a blind man receiving his sight. But here in Luke 11, we have something a little different. We have a man who, because he is being afflicted by a demon, can't speak. He's mute. His tongue has been chained by a demonic spirit that satisfies its perverse pleasure in keeping him from being able to verbally communicate. We're not told much more about that. We don't know how long this has been the case. Matthew tells us that he was also blind in addition to being you. But Luke focuses in on the fact that he cannot speak. Now, as we're going to see, Jesus casts out the demon and the man is delivered. But that's not the point of the passage. Luke deals with that very quickly up front. But what Luke wants to get to is what happens next. The miracle is merely the background for a faulty conclusion on the part of some who witnessed the miracle and Jesus' discourse in which he corrects their faulty conclusion. So let's see how all of this unfolds. Our, our passage begins very abruptly, doesn't it? And he was casting out a demon. Right? In the, now, you go back to verse 13, which we saw last week, and you see Jesus, of course, had been teaching his disciples about prayer. That's the first 13 verses of, of the chapter. And that section there ends... With these words of Jesus to the disciples. So if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And the very next phrase is, And he was casting out a new demon. How do you get from one to the other? Well, if nothing else, that makes you sit up and take notice. And perhaps that was Luke's intent in the way he's putting his gospel together. In any case, the mute man suddenly stands before Jesus, and Jesus begins to cast out the demon. And what catches my attention there in verse 14 is the grammar. Luke doesn't describe this event as if it's already completed. And he doesn't describe it as something which happened instantaneously. He doesn't say this man who was mute because of a demon came to Jesus and Jesus cast out the demon. Rather, he says that Jesus was casting out the demon. He uses language of action. Luke writes as if Jesus is in the process. Of casting out the demon. Luke wants you to know not only what happened, but he wants you to see it happening. As Luke's writing this, obviously this is all in the past tense. He could have put it that way, but he doesn't. He puts it in language that is intended to drag you into the story. This is so helpful when we come, especially to these narrative portions of Scripture. It's helpful to pay attention to those kinds of things, to the very words of the text, but also to let those words draw you into the scene that the text is describing, to put you there in the crowd when Jesus is casting out the mute demon. So Jesus was casting out a mute demon, and of course the mute demon was cast out. The man was delivered. Luke goes on in verse 14 to say that that when the demon had gone out, the, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. His tongue was free. The man was free. And having been set free, he spoke. Now, neither Luke nor Matthew tell us what he said, but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to assume that he broke out in shouts of thanksgiving and praise. And seeing this, both Matthew and Luke say that the crowds were amazed. Have you ever been amazed? There's some who make their living by amazing. We typically refer to them as magicians, the more accurately they are illusionists. You may be familiar with the team of Penn and Teller. Uh, They are not only world-class illusionists, they are also historians of the field. And they pride themselves on knowing just about all there is to know about how performers pull off these tricks. Well, they got themselves a television show. And on this show, other illusionists perform a trick, and Penn and Teller have to figure out how they did it. And if the performer can fool Penn and Teller, then they get this cheesy little statue. (laughs) Sometimes that happens. Sometimes they are stopped. But I find it interesting that these very successful illusionists, who know all there is to know about their craft, still have that sense of amazement when someone can trick them. And they still want to know how it's done, just like everyone else sitting in the theater. We all know it's a trick, but we want to know what lay behind it. Of course, the difference between Jesus and an illusionist is that Jesus really did cast out this demon from this man. But the crowds were amazed, and they wanted to know how. What is the power that lay behind it? Now, one would think it was pretty obvious. If the man was afflicted by a demon and Jesus had the power to cast out the demon, and in fact did so, the logical conclusion would be that he did so by the power of God. You know, God and Satan, they're on different teams. That's what I would conclude anyway. What I would not conclude is that Satan cast out one of his own demons. That would not immediately occur to me. But unbelief loves to undermine that which should be clear and obvious to everyone, and that's what some tried to do in this case. Verse 15 says, some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now Beelzebul had become in Hebrew culture by this time an alternative name for Satan. It finds its origin in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, uh, you have the, the name Beelzebul, which is connected, of course, to the pagan god Baal, which means Beelzebul, Lord of the Flies, or Beelzebub, I should say, in the Old Testament. So the name baal Zebub, Lord of the Flies, was a deliberate distortion which was used to deprecate this pagan god. Beelzebul, which is the form that the name took by the time of Christ, was and is a fitting name for Satan, but it is a monstrous slander when it's used to describe Christ and what he has done. But that's what they were saying. The hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes were so hard that they, in essence, were saying, yes, Jesus has done a miracle, but only because he's in league with Satan, the Lord of the flies, the God of dung and carrion. It was a calculated and perverse form of blasphemy. Mm -hmm. Now, not all went quite that far in their rejection of Christ. Some... We were a bit more polite about it. Verse 16, we read, Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. They wanted a cosmic miracle, perhaps like the turning back of the sun or manna from heaven. This wasn't as overtly slanderous as what the others had said, but it was slander nevertheless, and it was rooted in unbelieving, wicked hearts. The rejection of Christ by the religious establishment was so insulting and so outrageous that, humanly speaking, one might have expected Christ to simply turn away. This doesn't even deserve a response. It's not always easy to answer fools sometimes we ought not to try but these men were standing on the edge of the abyss and Christ not only knew the condition of their souls, he knew the condition of the souls of everyone in that crowd and he knew that they needed to hear what he was about to say What they had just witnessed was a direct, unambiguous demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now they must make life's ultimate judgment, and they were at the point of making a decision which once deliberately made would be irreversible. It would make deliverance forever impossible. Reject the Holy Spirit Call ultimate good evil. Call truth himself a lie. And God himself has no further evidence left. There's nothing left to say. God has said all there is in his son, in the work of the Holy Spirit. And you still don't get it. Then God is reduced to silence. These people were tottering on the edge of an eternity of judgment. But Jesus would not let them go on without explaining to them exactly what they were doing. He was not going to let them suppose that reason was on their side. He was going to show them that to reject Him, they would of necessity have to reject all logic and rationality. They would be forced to call white black and black white. They would be forced to understand their minds and the way they think was twisted. So in verses 17 through 22, Jesus reasons with his enemies and he does so out of mercy. In verses 23 through 26, He then gives them a warning, and the warning is also out of mercy. Jesus' detractors had accused him of performing this miracle by the power of Satan. For the sake of argument, let's grant them a thread of plausibility. Suppose Satan allowed one of his demons, who was holding a man mute, to be cast out by Jesus so that... Jesus would gain credibility, thus enabling Satan and Jesus together to win Israel to Jesus, who under this theory would, of course, be a false messiah. Satan's messiah. What if they accepted a little loss one demonized man set free? in order to take many others captive, those who witnessed the miracle. What would someone have to do in order to believe that theory? That's essentially where they were willing. One would also have to explain the rest of Jesus' ministry. This doesn't stand in isolation, does it? Not the only demon that Jesus cast out. Jesus cast out legions of demons. Mm -hmm. To say that Jesus' entire ministry could be devoted to casting out demons and and then to say that Jesus was at the same time in league with Satan is to speak nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's the height of irrationality. Luke alone records at least 10 instances of. Of healing, four of them explicitly involving exorcism. Sometimes the exorcism of multiple demons. Here's just one example. Chapter four. Now, while the sun was setting, all those who had any, who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him, and he was laying his hands on them, each uh, laying his hands on each of them and healing them. Demons also were coming out of many. Shouting, you are the son of God. And yet he was rebuking them and would not allow them to speak. Because they knew that he was the Christ. So here's what we need to understand. It has become very popular for people to speak of truth as something one possesses. They will speak of your truth and my truth. Truth isn't possessed. And truth does not change depending on one's perception. Mm -hmm. There is only one reality. There is only one truth. Reality is that God is. Reality is that God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That's reality. That's truth. To deny that is to embrace what is false. To embrace what is false is to embrace irrationality. Yeah. Jesus' detractors were so committed to a lie that they were willing to embrace that which on its face was irrational. And yeah. here's another reality. Jesus is gracious and merciful. Yeah. Gracious. Being gracious and merciful, he condescends to explain reality to those who were denying it. And he does so by painting a couple of word pictures. The first you see there in verses 17 and 18. He knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls if Satan also is divided against himself, how will this? How will his kingdom stand? For you to say that I cast out demons. For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. In 1986, there was a peace march that began in Los Angeles and was to continue across the country until the marchers was reached Washington D.C. The expectation was that 5,000 people would make the march. They anticipated 100,000 people gathering there in Los Angeles for a concert to kind of kick the thing off. Thousands, they assumed, would line the roads along the way, and they anticipated that through this march they would reach in some way or another 65 million people with their message thereby changing the political climate of the nation. And all of this, they said, would be funded by $20 million in corporate donations. Didn't go quite as they planned. Neither money nor people were forthcoming. This peace march began with 1,200 marchers instead of 5,000. And about 120 miles out of L.A., half of the 1,200 became disgruntled and went home. The evident failure of the march caused division among the remaining personnel as they argued over who really constituted a marcher. Can we really count those who are traveling in vehicles rather than walking They even fought over a dress code. Finally, they decided to hold an election, but they disagreed on who would be able to vote. Afterwards, the election itself was declared invalid, and by the time those who remained had made it to Washington, many of them were not speaking to one another. So much for a peace march. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. There was no way Jesus and Satan could be marching together. That wasn't going to happen. Jesus then goes on, of course, to ask a very telling question. Verse 19, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. Jewish contemporaries of Jesus did in fact perform exorcisms. There's a record of it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19. There is a record of it in, in uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian of the first century. And most people believe that they did it by the power of God. Were they on Satan's team too? Were all who cast out demons in league with Satan? The whole argument reduces to absurdity. And the final thrust of this kind of mini-parable drove the point home there in verse 20. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon me. Now the allusion to the finger of God calls to mind the scriptural account of Moses delivering Egypt by, re- uh, by repeated displays of supernatural power. He's taking his people out of Egypt. And he's constantly displaying the power of God so that Pharaoh's own magicians warned him, saying, this is the finger of God. Jesus had the same power, and he did it with the same ease, in the conclusion, which should have been escapable, was that the power of God, which enabled Christ to cast out demons, was proof positive of the presence of the kingdom of God. You understand this, right? Mm-hmm. You need to understand this because you're not going to be able to understand the entirety of Scripture unless you understand this. The kingdom of God is not something we are still waiting for. The kingdom of God was instituted by Christ at his first coming. And the miracles which he performed, he says, are the evidence that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now the other word picture Jesus used was that of a strong man who is overpowered. Verse 21, he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. So get the picture in your mind of a well-fortified, well-armed castle. That's the idea of what Jesus is saying here. The strong lord of the castle is concerned with maintaining the security of his estate. Being a strong man with substantial power, his possessions are quite secure until someone stronger comes along. Until someone stronger attacks. The strong man in the story... The well-armed lord of the castle is Satan. His possessions are people, such as the possessed man. The stronger man who attacks is Jesus. So the very fact that Christ had delivered this mute man from Satan's power was evidence that he was not on Satan's side. Rather, he had come to attack Satan, and he was now in the process of plundering that which had once belonged to Satan, and taking it for himself. And Jesus is still doing this. When you look back at the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus there says, here's what's going on. you got the strong man. I'm the one who has come in and I've bound the strong man. And I am now plundering what is his. And that's how you understand what the binding of Satan means in Revelation 20, by the way, where John writes that Satan is bound for a specific reason. John doesn't say he's bound completely able to do nothing. He's still roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He is bound specifically so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And you see that happening at the first coming of Christ. When the gospel then, because of Christ's life and death and burial and resurrection, the gospel goes out of Israel into all the nations. And you and I are now children of the king of the kingdom. Hallelujah. We are citizens of the kingdom because Jesus has bound the evil one. He has bound the strong man and he is plundering that which once belonged to him. Hallelujah. We once belonged to him. And Christ has taken us Hallelujah. for himself. Now, as we've already seen, there are different kinds of people in this crowd. Not everyone was ready to agree with those who attributed Jesus' power to Satan. And yet they felt no need to commit themselves to Christ either. They wanted to kind of walk the middle road. They wanted to hold back. They wanted to remain neutral, at least until they could receive some cosmic sign. doesn't grant them that luxury. He very aggressively and forthrightly declares in verse 23, he who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. If you are not for Jesus, you are against him. Given the massive claims of Jesus, neutrality is nothing more than self-deception. You can trick yourself into believing that you're not against Jesus. Jesus says otherwise. His claims are so great that protestations of neutrality are nothing more than declarations of disbelief. And the only way you can be for Jesus is if you believe in Jesus. Biblical. I just believe that He existed. Trust in Him. Give yourself to Him. There simply is no neutrality when it comes to Christ. There is no spiritual Switzerland. You are with Christ or you are against Him. Spiritual realities have not changed. Every man, every woman is either for Christ or against Him. And as his words settle into the hearts of his hearers, Jesus then relates yet another story in verses 24 to 26. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And not finding any, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Now, there's a lot of questions that we might have about this that Jesus doesn't see fit to answer. It's not clear whether the evil spirit leaves the man in, a, in search of a better place to live, or because he is... Cast out, in any event, its journey through desolate places turns up no suitable place to rest, and so it returns to its previous abode. Meanwhile, while he's gone looking for an upgrade in his living conditions, the former victim has swept his life clean. He's reordered it so that the space is even more inviting Mm -hmm. and the returning demon then is overjoyed at what it finds there's a whole renovation that's been done and he seeks out seven other demonic spirits so they can all settle down in a demonic commune Mm -hmm. in this man the feast on his poor soul And the last condition of that person is worse than the first. Jesus wants to make sure the people know there is a difference between self-reformation and regeneration. If your focus is upon the reformation of your moral life, you may become an upstanding, respectable person. But if that's all you are, you will be an upstanding, respectable person who spends eternity in hell. Because here's another reality. The reality is that self-reformation without regeneration and the indwelling God of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of God the Holy Spirit, is fatal. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Mm -hmm. Satan would be perfectly fine with that. Mm -hmm. Jesus came to make dead people live. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyone who purges evil and puts nothing in its place is worse off than they were before him why? That doesn't seem to make sense. Even if people are outside of Christ, don't we want them to be better people? Yes and no. It's better for me if you're a good person. I don't have to worry about you stealing my stuff. (laughs) Beating me over the head. Stealing my, my, my identity. So that's good for me. But here's the problem for you. It deceives you into thinking that God's okay with you too. This emphasizes the utter danger in today's world where we are always being told to look inward. To focus upon the self. We're being told to sweep our house clean and put it in good order. But in doing so, we're leaving it empty. And if you're empty, without God, then any sin, perversion, corruption is possible. Even the corruption of self-righteousness. A vacuum has to be filled with something, and if it's not the Spirit of God, there is no telling what it will be. Now this contrasts sharply with the the sweetness of Jesus' words during His final days here on earth. You'll remember when He stood on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Mm -hmm. But that can't happen if you're empty. Jesus' reasoning and answering those who credited his power to Satan was overwhelming. A kingdom divided cannot stand. It takes one stronger than the strong to rescue the victim of sin. And Jesus' warnings also cut to the quick. There is no neutrality possible regarding Him. We are either with Him or against Him. Moral reformation without regeneration leaves you empty, leaving you open to all kinds of wickedness that you may not even consider to be wicked, but God does. Hmm. It leaves you open even to that which masquerades as righteousness. Finally, in verses 27 and 28, we read this. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And don't separate that from everything else that we've seen. What's Jesus saying? He's saying? Listen, I haven't told you anything new. It's all in the scripture. But you haven't been obedient to the scripture. The woman here did not know it, but Jesus knew that her blessing coincided with the beatitude that Mary, his mother, had given herself in the Magnificat. From now on, Mary says, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And then, decades later, this woman comes along and says, blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts at which you nursed. And indeed, the mother of Jesus was the most blessed of women. She was great in her humility. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant, she says. She was great in her submission. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And this, so this, this woman was more right than she could possibly have known. Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast of which you nursed. Jesus does not disagree. The sense of Jesus' response is, rather than on the contrary, really is, yes, but blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. He's not denying what she said. What she said is true, but more true is that those who obey the word of God will be blessed as well. Right. Jesus liked what the woman said. He's not reproving her. He's simply improving upon what she says. He's saying, in fact, what you said is right, but there's a higher truth. She was blessed who bore me, but more surely blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey. Mary was blessed because she heard the word of God and she obeyed, and this The attitude rests on all those who will do the same. It rests on, on some in that sober crowd who heard Jesus' words that day. And it rests on millions since. Everyone who hears the word of God and obeys it is blessed. And this puts the highest blessing of God within the reach of all of us. Do you want to be blessed? There are only two steps to blessing. And it's not name it and claim it. It is to hear the word of God and obey it. We need to listen to the word with reverence. We must hear it with understanding. We must know what it means and then we must do what it says. Jesus said that hearing the Word of God and keeping it is a higher blessing than Mary's blessing in giving birth to Jesus. This is the key to all blessings in this life and in the next. This is what cuts through all of those slanderous objections to Jesus. The woman's cry soars above the slander of the Pharisees and the murmurings of the crowd. The woman's cry was reality. The woman's cry was truth. Jesus had mercifully reasoned with them and he had mercifully warned them and now he set before them the possibility that if they would embrace reality they too would And you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior. I want you to be blessed. By hearing the word of God and obeying it. And the word of God says that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son. That if you believe in him, you will not perish, but have everlasting life. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, the one aspect... Of the word of God that you need to obey. Is the word which tells you. That you must repent and trust in Christ. Mm -hmm. That's what you need to obey. The rest will come. But that's where you start. If you are outside of Christ this morning. You are empty. You are empty. And you are trying to fill your life with something which will not do the job. Only Christ can fill you. Yeah, that's right. And anything else you try to fill your life with will bring you further under the condemnation of God. won't. Your answers are in Jesus. Your answers are in the Word. And that's where we are to look. And when we look there and obey what we find, God will pour out His blessings upon us. That doesn't mean you'll get everything you want. doesn't mean your life will suddenly become easier but your life will be used to the glory of God. And if you are a genuine child of God, that's what you want. And when the trials do come, God will sustain you and cause you to persevere. And He will use those trials for your good and for His glory. Father, do this in us. Bless us, Father, as Your Spirit causes us. To obey your word. Speak so that we might hear. And your spirit illumine the word of God. So that we understand. So that we live as faithful disciples of your son. The Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.